Welcome to the 25th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute postdoc series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military company, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapon. I'm your host, Alessandro Arduino, and today I'm extremely thrilled to have with us Dr. Molly Dunnigan, the Acting Associate Director of International Security Defense and Policy Center at RAND. She's also a senior political scientist at RAND Corporation and a senior lecturer in the Carnegie Mellon University Institute for Politics and Strategy. Her research encompasses military privatization, outsourcing, operation contract support, strategic competition, civil-military relation, civilian deployment, counterinsurgency, and maritime security. She's the recipient of numerous awards, and I have to say today on the record that I'm extremely grateful for her book, especially Victory for Hire, Private Security Company Impact on the Military Effectiveness, and especially Market for Force, Privatization of Security Across the World Region. I used both publication when I was at the early stage of my research, especially writing on Chinese private security. And I have to say these two books has been a milestone in, in my research. But now we are not looking at Chinese private security. Ukraine, what has been called a special military operation is still going on. And uh, in our previous episode in BOTG, we discussed with uh, Dr. Thor Burkval, the role of mercenary as a global placeholder for Russia geopolitical ambition. And I have to admit at the time that uh, for us was quite emotional that we programmed to have our recording on February 21st. And it was basically just a few hours after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, almost two months have passed since Russia tank began to flood Ukraine. And we have already witnessed numerous reports on alleged Wagner mercenary being the country, and even a staggering number, 16,000 to 14,000 Syrian mercenary getting ready to fight for Russia. So Molly, what do you think about this statement, especially the Wagner group being back to Ukraine and this impressive number of Syrian mercenaries? Thank you so much, Alessandra, for having me here today. So I think, you know, one thing I want to emphasize is that data on this topic are always notoriously difficult to come by. And particularly when you're dealing with an active war zone where information and the information space is very contested. So I would read some of these numbers with some skepticism and some hesitation. It's going to be really difficult to get a clear picture of how many mercenaries are on the ground. Um, on the Russian side, as, as well as foreign fighters on the Ukrainian side, probably until, you know, we have a retrospective view and, you know, hindsight, 2020 hindsight to go with. Um, that being said, it does appear that there have been uh, several hundred to several thousand Russian mercenaries on the ground already, often referred to under this sort of umbrella turn of Wagner group mercenaries, Although I should say it's a little bit deceptive at this point to use the term Wagner may not be just one company anymore. It may have spun off into several. I've seen uh, one spinoff named Liga, which you know could very well be run by the same people. It might not be. Um, but these are groups that are very closely tied to Putin's inner circle and Russian oligarchy. 
and very different from other types of PMCs and, and PSCs that we see across the world because they are so closely tied to the state apparatus and such a paramilitary force. Um, you know, you mentioned Syrian mercenaries as well. We can talk about what that might look like and the extent to which they may be, you know, sort of acting in parallel to Wagner or acting as a replacement for Wagner mercenaries because of personnel and sort of force multiplying uh, impacts that they could have. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's it's definitely a scary, uh, potentially scary development, not in terms of so much what they might do operationally on the ground, but the terror that they may instill there. So we can talk about that. Yes, as, as you mentioned, the data is not easy to get. Uh, and also there is not a clear picture, but I, I do believe these are the strength when you use uh, private military companies uh, and, and mercenaries. And uh, in, in an article that I think you wrote uh, almost a year ago, Russian mercenary in great power competition, strategic Superman or a weak link. Uh, you mentioned uh, already, and it was quite an impressive foresight, that the Russian army strategic, list, strategic lift was anemic compared to the Soviet time. And therefore, uh, uh, Russian capability to wage war were limited, something that nobody was expecting, and it showcased it in Ukraine. Uh, can you describe your assessment to your audience uh, and... Uh, how this uh, Russian mercenary being Superman or a weak link is changed in light of the ongoing war? Sure, thanks so much for that question. So I do think actually that that article was quite prescient in some ways, and I'll give most of the credit for it to my colleague and co-author Ben Conable, um, who wrote it with me. That assessment uh, regarding Russian army strategic lift and, and the fact that it was likely anemic compared to Soviet times was based on a 2020 RAND report that Ben had led. Um, it's the report of, uh, is titled Russia's Limits of Advance and it's freely available as a PDF on RAND's website. But in that work, Ben and his team had assessed Russian military capabilities against specific potential future scenarios. And they concluded that Russia lacked the capability to project power significantly beyond Eastern Europe due to a variety of factors based on their sort of gaming and scenario analysis. Um, most of the factors, I would say, fell in the realm of both logistical and personnel shortcomings. So, you know, strategic lift and transport shortcomings, but also the fact, for instance, that the Russian military is so heavily dependent upon conscripts. Um, so, you know, when you look at that in light of the fact that Russia is also concurrently deploying, you know, thousands of mercenaries at this point under the guise and under the umbrella of Wagner and other groups, it really does uh, sort of call into question, are they doing this sort of as a sleight of hand? Is it, is it a house of cards in some ways to cover up? what is actually shortcomings in their own military. You did mention that, yes, some of the, the fact that data are so difficult to come by on these forces is one of their strengths. And certainly uh, it's what I call backdoor deployments of PSCs and PMCs. You know, they can be deployed without the eyes of the public on them. Um, this can be advantageous both, you know, in terms of international views, but also domestic views. So democratic presidents will often deploy them 
to, to get around domestic political opposition to a war. Um, but I do think that, you know, this, this fact that you have significant personnel shortcomings in particular, um, you know, is one of the reasons that they've been trying to deploy Wagner mercenaries in their place. I still uh, think uh, that when you mention backdoor deployment, that uh, that is extremely important to look at this angle. But um, in hybrid warfare context or uh, kind in area where you don't want to be seen uh, that work, and I'm referring especially to the MENA region, the Middle East and uh, North Africa, where it seemed that Wagner present not only is, uh, is still operational there, but it's increasing. And in some respect uh, is, uh, in my personal opinion, helping the Kremlin to keep a presence in the MENA region while Ukraine is absorbing all attention and uh, resources. But one, one point going back to, to your paper that you mentioned that uh, mercenaries are a Russia weak link. So do you agree with my previous statement that still they are an important geopolitical placeholder, especially in area spanning from uh, Middle East to North Africa? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. And, and I'm going to try to make a nuanced argument with regard to it. Um, we'll see how successful I am. So I do think that Russia, particularly since 2014, has been trying to strategically utilize Wagner and related groups to have a you know boots on the ground presence across, particularly uh, the African continent, but also throughout the MENA region, as well as in Eastern Europe. I mean, they were in Crimea and Ukraine back in 2014. We've also seen them over in Venezuela. So they are definitely utilizing them um, to have some sort of strategic reach and to probably increase their positioning with regard to strategic competition with both uh, the United States and China. Um, however, having said that, I think that there are a lot of weaknesses that are sort of obfuscated when you look at just the numbers and types of these deployments and where they're based on a map. Um, and, and some of them we wrote about in that article. Um, you know, a lot of the research that we had done underpinning that article was on Russian mercenaries' will to fight, and specifically what we saw in terms of their will to fight in Syria. So there are different dimensions, you know, Rand has, has done pretty systematic analysis of will to fight and has developed tools to assess it. Um, but pretty specific dimensions on which we measured it, including things like, you know, were what were the motivating factors for their personnel to sign up to begin with? Were there any morale issues after they had deployed? Um, did they, was there any human trafficking involved? It does appear that there have been cases of human trafficking where their passports are taken once they get into theater. Sometimes they're lied to about where they're going to theater um, and where they're going to deploy. And they think they're going to deploy in a relatively hospitable environment. And then they end up somewhere completely different. Um, and they're sort of told to work off their contract and fight their way out, or they can pay for their plane ticket home. So all of these things impact their will to fight. The other thing related to this is their skill, their underlying skill. I mean, we have seen 
Wagner mercenaries who are very highly skilled and are drawn directly from Russian special forces. They were founded in 2014 by Dmitry Utkin, as you probably know, who's the former commander of the GRU Spetsnaz, the Russian Army Special Forces. And, you know, that's, I think, primarily where they get some of their brutal tactics from is from his uh, sort of guidance and oversight and, and direction there. But they also have hired and have had to span out to many fewer, um, uh, like more folks with fewer skills, if that makes sense. And, and so that we think about them in terms of these levels of skill, some of them being very closely tied to the GRU and the FSB, the, the Russian intelligence services. Um, so, you know, sort of retired military and intelligence operatives. And then you have sort of a middle level where they may have had some former um, military experience. And then you have what uh, folks in the in the field and the practice of looking at these guys commonly call the cannon fodder. And so they sort of throw them in and utilize them as force multipliers, but also to, you know, they put them in really inhospitable situations and also sort of discount their deaths as, you know, the, the Russian public isn't going to look at them very much. Um, so I, I do think that, well, strategically, Russia is definitely trying to employ Wagner in a way to make up for some of its weaknesses and its own military might. There are also a lot of weaknesses in its mercenary forces that are being obfuscated in its doing so. And I think the more we can shed light on those things and show where those pressure points may be and, and have some leverage against them, the better off we'll, we'll be in trying to combat this force. Thank you, Molly. I think it's very important what you just mentioned uh, in, uh, in the research uh, done by Rand uh, in terms of willingness to fight. Uh, I mean, I unfortunately don't have the Rand data set and database, but I can recall an old Italian chap and his name was Machiavelli. And he used to say that mercenary in time of peace uh, are uh, willing to show this word, uh, while in time of war, they are trying to avoid it as much as possible. And in some respect, we don't have to forget that still, uh, if some of Wagner group uh, uh, people are looking at Mother Russia and uh, they are part of GRU and special forces, most of them are still there for the coin. So if during a conflict for them, both victory or losing are a bad outcome. Losing because, of course, they end up dead or maimed victory because it will be end of their business. So they are there just to preserve or continuing insecurity. And that's one of the severe issues that you have with, uh, with mercenary all over the world, uh, not only with Rand Group. But having said that, uh, there's another question that is quite difficult, and I posed it to all our guests discussing on, uh, on Russia, Tora, Sergei Shukanin, Candice Rondo, and so on, that there are a lot of intricacy in uh, research on about Russia, private military company. Uh, and especially, I would like to ask you how, in your opinion, Russia perceive its own private military companies? Yeah, that's a great question as well. So, I mean, <laughs> I think there are different opinions there, right? So um, I think the Russian government 
views them probably differently from the Russian public do. Um, and, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, you note uh, that this is very difficult and there are a lot of intricacies uh, of researching this. I think that's really critical because it's, you know, some something I hate to speculate on too much, but what we have seen is that uh, they are very able to cover up the deaths of Wagner mercenaries without much public outcry. And so that to some extent indicates that, you know, there, there is just less concern amongst the public. There have been reports that they are, um, the families uh, of those who die uh, serving for Wagner or related firms are sort of threatened that if they talk to the media or anybody else about how their sons died, they will not receive the um, death payments, which can be quite significant, uh, you know, especially in the context of the Russian economy. Um, so I think that there's, there's a good deal of, uh, you know, again, obfuscation is sort of the word of the day here. There's a good deal of covering up the extent to which they're utilized. Um, the other thing, they're not all Russians. And I think that that is really important to note. They do draw upon other nationalities as you know, sort of the definition of a mercenary force would make you think. Um, you know, and I think that's part of the reason they have to call on Syrian proxies so much right now because the nationalities that, that Wagner was drawing from for its prior conflicts included Ukrainians. Moldovans and Serbians in addition to Russians. And so I would think that they're having some personnel problems now, just in terms of being able to get enough folks on the ground with them. Um, so they're looking to other labor sources. Um, but in terms of, you know, how they're seen in Russia, otherwise, you know, for, in terms of government circles, and this sort of alludes to your last question, I, I do think they're seen as a tool of the Russian government. It's interesting that Russia is one of the few countries that has not legalized the use of private military and security firms. Um, and they have, you know, they have actually demurred on votes that were put forth in their parliament to do so. Um, so they have actively chosen not to legalize them. And it does seem that that has been a strategic decision. You know, they they want them as a tool in their back pocket to try to have some strategic reach across the globe, but also to be able to plausibly deny that they are linked to the Russian government whatsoever. And we saw that after some of their activities in Syria, where large deployments of Wagner mercenaries were arrested at the airport um, when they came back to Russia and the government, you know, completely sort of, you know, distance itself from their activities there. While simultaneously in other um, battles in the Syrian conflict, you know, they were awarding military medals to Wagner mercenaries too. So I, I think they really think that they can utilize them instrumentally and they are trying to do so. Yes, no, I totally agree. Uh, the fact that the Duma didn't pass uh, the amendment to the law to make a private military company legal, uh, it doesn't mean that Russia doesn't want to use it. It just gives it strategic leverage in case some uh, of the mercenary outfit or spin-off don't uh, 
uh, fall in place uh, as the Kremlin want to do as it happened. And you mentioned it correctly, there was a group of mercenaries coming back from Syria and there was FSB waiting for them uh, at the airport in Moscow. And uh, in this respect, we have also speak a lot with uh, Ilio Tiggins, uh, the, the founder of Bellingcat, uh, that uh, it was quite interesting to see how he follow on the social media all uh, the event and the discussion relate to this and the Russian government uh, was always denying having private military company and then at the end when you have the Mali government, a government officially asking for that and you have the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs that just say it's a private company. So then again all this uh, layer of obfuscation that stem out uh, uh, Wagner Group uh, as a label or as an umbrella as you mentioned it before but now I want to ask you another question, and probably is too early to, to ask it, uh, but we, we saw from the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine that things were not playing well for the Russian army, or at least at what they were expecting. Uh, this war is going to sign the end of the Wagner group, uh, or even it will be a booster for the group to increase its footprint in Africa, or as you also mentioned before, Venezuela, so even increase the footprint in South America? Yeah, thank you. This is another great question. Um, I really don't want to speculate on how the war itself will end at this point. I, I think it's, it's a difficult thing to speculate on. Um, I certainly don't see this being an end to Wagner, but I also think the impact of the conflict on Wagner very much depends on the impact of the conflict on the Russian state and on Putin's inner circle. And I say this because, as I mentioned earlier, Wagner is unlike many other modern PMCs that we see deployed by Western states, it's very much a paramilitary and state-linked entity. And so I think, you know, if the Russian state disintegrates, if the Russian economy disintegrates, if uh, Putin and his inner circle, uh, you know, somehow go by the wayside, then Wagner could have a much more difficult time moving forward, I think. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we haven't talked too much about what Wagner's impact will be on the ground in Ukraine. And I alluded to this a little bit early on in the show, but I, I do think that they will face some challenges in really changing the operational course of the conflict. Um, you know, some of my prior research has looked in detail at um, the impact of private military forces on military effectiveness. And one of the things that really comes out of that work is that they, especially when they're deployed alongside allied military forces, they can have major um, C2 issues, command and control issues, if, if it's not dealt with in a very systematic manner. Um, so there can be you know, structural communications problems, um, there can be friendly fire incidents, there can just be sort of a lack of knowing who's doing what on their side, right? Um, unless they're really, really incorporated very systematically alongside the military. I don't think, I, I also think given the will to fight issues that they, you know, could have and, and some of the human trafficking indications again of, you know, how these people are 
recruited and, and where they think they're going and what they think they're doing, especially at those lower levels, those, those non-special forces levels, um, you know, I think that that could make it challenging for them to have a large scale impact over time. And obviously it's hard to get the appropriate numbers that you would need of the special forces levels. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there are only so many of those guys to go around. Um, that being said, I do think one of the impacts they're going to have on the operational course of the conflict is to instill terror in the population. And I said this recently on another interview um, before we saw what had happened in Buka um, and before we had some indication that Wagner was involved there. But, you know, some of the tactics that they have utilized and that have really been sort of fed down the ranks systematically from their founder, Dmitry Utkin, have been very brutal. Um, and we've seen this across the different conflicts that they have been involved in. So torture, beheadings, um, strapping, you know, grenades to teddy bears as they did in Libya. So children would find them. Um, and, and these are things that I think before, uh, you know, Wagner got involved, so directly in Ukraine, I, I don't think we were seeing as much of that, certainly not from conscript forces. Um, so one of the downstream impacts on Wagner over time from this war may be that there is more international condemnation of mercenary activity. You know, it raises to a, a new level of exposure to the international community. Um, there have been calls for years for some sort of UN regulation um, or some sort of international regulation or amendment to the Geneva Conventions to try to better regulate mercenarism. This may stimulate some of that in some directions, but I certainly don't think that it will happen soon because there are a lot of challenges with that. I totally agree with you. There are a lot of challenges in this course. We had uh, not long ago in our BOTG, uh, Dr. Sorkin McLeod, uh, and uh, she is uh, in the work, UN working group uh, on mercenary activity. And uh, at the time they were looking very close uh, the footprint of Wagner group uh, in, uh, in Libya. And you mentioned, uh, I mean, effectiveness, uh, willingness to fight uh, and uh, something that we didn't talk much before, but I do believe it's very important. And I thank you for mentioning it uh, is the moral impact of mercenary mercenary uh, willingness for brutality and how it impacts the morale, not only of the military force, but also of the civilian force. And unfortunately, history is full of this example. Come to my mind, the Varangian forces as the bodyguard in the Ottoman Empire. And just when the population were looking at uh, the Raven banner of the Varangian, that was uh, a severe, uh, moral disruption in the forces. But we, we can go on to talk about this, I think, for our, but unfortunately, our show is going to end. And Molly, <clears throat> I have to thank you very much for your time. And I have one last question. I would like to move the discussion on Russian quasi-PMC uh, and looking more at the bird-eye view on the evolution of the sector we are witnessing an increased presence of Chinese private security company abroad. And now we have a new kind of kids on the block. A security company from Turkey, Sadat Academy Sankar, 
And uh, also we are still looking at an evolution of the footprint uh, of the Western private military company or even just the United States private military company. Since uh, the end of the conflict in Afghanistan, the West is also changing the modus operandi of its PMC in a new area, operational area. So this is a, a quite long story, but uh, in your opinion, in a nutshell, what's the future of PMC? Thanks, Alex. This is also a great question and, and also one that's somewhat difficult to speculate upon, but I would, you know, draw upon history to answer it. And I think it's really important to note that uh, the past, you know, since between 1789 and 2003, so, you know, I guess 200 years or so, there were, you know, the, the huge dearth of mercenarism and private security and private military companies and really the, the prominence of state-run militaries. And that had been instituted following the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, but it hadn't really actually begun in practice until the end of the French Revolution. Prior to that, though, the norm across any type of war throughout history, civil, civil wars, international wars, however you want to look at it, was the use of hired forces and mercenarism. And we see this, you know, the first documented example of mercenaries dates back to 2094 BC. Um, and they were utilized throughout the Roman and Peloponnesian Wars. They were utilized throughout, you know, the Italian city-states and their conflicts from 12 in the 1200s, 1300s, and 1400s, and with the condottieri. Um, and so this really, what we're seeing a return to is actually, you know, it's a new form of normal, but it really was the norm for a very long time. And actually the use of state militaries is not the norm, um, but was something that, you know, we had sort of imposed upon the system. So I mentioned 2003 as being the point when this ended, and this was, you know, the beginning of the Iraq war, there was an explosion of privatization on the Western side. Um, with, you know, the U.S. and coalition partners utilizing firms that were sometimes popping up overnight, sometimes these sort of mom and pop shops. And this, I think, has evolved now into what, you know, you're mentioning now that we're seeing with, you know, Russian PMCs, Chinese PSCs, you know, Turkish PMCs working abroad. And it's what our colleague Sean McFate, you know, refers to as one of the new rules of war that mercenaries will return and this will be the new norm. So I don't think the trend is going to go away at all, but I do see, I mean, the, the industry is always very fluid and particularly when you have um, firms that are more market oriented than what we've been talking about tonight. I mean, Wagner is so state driven, it's not very market oriented um, because it, it really is a, a paramilitary organization tied to the Russian government. Um, but when you have PMCs and PSCs that are much more market-driven, they, they quickly will evolve based on the needs of the market and you know new companies will pop up. Other ones will evolve the services that they offer. So sometimes they change shape pretty much overnight or within a matter of weeks. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that on a larger scale. And, you know, as conflicts become more internationalized and global, 
um, you know, we'll continue to see the, the spread of this throughout the world. Thank you very much. And with your last sentence, you helped me to rope in our uh, next podcast that we are going to look uh, at the cyber mercenary and how mercenary are shifting gradually uh, to the cyber realm uh, and cybersecurity. Molly, I have to thank you very much for being with us today and also have to thank our audience for listening. Thank you and have a great day.